Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thank you all for joining us on NatSec Nightcap. We're excited today to have Congressman Mike Waltz, uh, U.S. Congressman for Florida's 6th District, and the first former Green Beret ever elected to Congress. Congressman Waltz has served over 24 years in the Army. He's presently serving the National Guard. As a Green Beret, Congressman Waltz served worldwide as a decorated Special Forces officer with multiple combat tours in Afghanistan, the Middle East, and Africa. For his actions in combat, Congressman Waltz was awarded four Bronze Stars, two with Valor. His servant leadership continued in the Pentagon when he was a Defense Policy Director for both Secretaries of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and Bob Gates. He then went on to serve in the White House as Vice President Dick Cheney's counterterrorism advisor. In 2020, Mike was promoted to rank of colonel. He's also the author of Warrior Diplomat, a Green Beret's Battles from Washington, Afghanistan. Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, great to be with you. Great to be with so, you, Jamil. Wish we were in person, man. With I know it. With a beer, with a beer or a bourbon. It always makes the conversation better. Absolutely. Well, so look, I say we jump right in. Um, you know, some of the hottest news happening right now, and perhaps the most troubling news, is uh, the decision by the president uh, to withdraw from Afghanistan. He's made clear that um, that we'll be leaving Afghanistan. Two presidents have, have said that before, President Obama and President Trump. Uh, but it appears that President Biden is committed to it. And he's actually set a final date, uh, September 11th, 2021, the 20th anniversary, ironically enough, of, uh, of the 9-11 attacks. Uh, what are you hearing up on the Hill? How are, how are people reacting? How are people in the district reacting to this, uh, this decision by the president? Yeah, well, first, let's just start with this, with this date, you know, surrender by date or withdrawal by date. Uh, how, however you want to term it, I think is it's really sadly tone deaf uh, to, you know, th- this could be, it, it could go fine. I don't th- find that likely. Uh, the Af- Afghan government and army could stand on its feet and continue to, to fight the fight against extremism. It very well could be a Saigon moment. Uh, but regardless, to kind of cloud and dilute uh, that anniversary and that date for the families uh, I found really, t- again, tone deaf and disappointing. I just had literally just an hour ago had coffee with a gold star uh, spouse who lost her husband in Afghanistan. And, and not just from her, but a number. I've been very active in gold star legislation to take care of those families. Right. Uh, and and they're, they're pretty upset themselves. So set that aside. I think at the end of the day, uh, sadly, and I told Secretary Blinken, Austin, Avril Haines, uh, and, and General Milley this in a, in a session we just had a few days ago, I, yeah. I fear that this is replaying the horror movie that the withdrawal from Iraq and, uh, and ISIS storming across the Middle East, Europe, and inspiring attacks in the United States. However, Jamil, uh, yeah. I think this is why it's going to be worse. Uh, if you just take a look at the map, uh, when we had to go back into Iraq, uh, we did so with a friendly government in place, and we right. had basing options. You know, you have Israel, you have Turkey, you have the Gulf states, you have Kurdistan. In Afghanistan, you have Russia, China, Pakistan, and Iran. We have no right. other options. The other piece that it really is is nonsensical to me. So sit aside the counterterrorism piece, Al Qaeda coming back, having yeah. to fight our way back in. Sit that aside for a moment. One of the main justifications is we need to shift to great power competition. Uh, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, which I know we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah. Well, again, look at the map, Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan, 
the only country in the world where we actually have an air base bordering China, but right. also on the southern flank of Russia and eastern flank of Iran. So why we would just give that territory away for nothing uh, that we have fought with so for for with so much blood and treasure, and the government wants us to stay, uh, really is is astounding to me. And I've been I've been consistent across administrations. This isn't a partisan thing. I've told President right. Trump this personally as well. That small force there conducting counterterrorism and uh, training the Afghan security forces is our insurance policy. We need to fight forward. I want to play offense, not defense. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, we'll see how this goes over the next couple of months. Yeah. Look, I mean, a lot of things to talk about in what you just said there. Uh, but let's talk about first about, about China and its role in Afghanistan. It seems to me that if, if we leave Afghanistan now, there's clearly be a vacuum, right? The Taliban first will come into that vacuum. It's, yep. It strikes me that China, Russia are very likely to step into that, into that, uh, that opportunity, leaving these bases available to them. Uh, you know, we've seen what can happen in, in the past. Does this, does this make sense from that perspective alone? Do you see it that way? Also, do you see China coming in and potentially sort of being A, more influential, right? And B, yeah. potentially taking advantage of that airbase there that we have at Bali. Well, Well, I mean, I, I see the Chinese doing what they're doing in developing countries all over the world, in South America, Central America, Africa. Uh, they'll come in literally with bags of cash. Uh, they're not constrained by the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, uh, but, you know, they extract such a toll uh, for for that debt diplomacy, uh, where Afghanistan you know ends up giving up its sovereignty, uh, we saw that with the Anyak copper mine, where they where they promised all kinds of development around the mine. They haven't done anything, but they have the rights to the world's third largest copper reserves for the next thirty right. years. Uh, so we know I commissioned years ago when I worked in the Pentagon, helped commission a U.S. Geological Survey of Afghanistan. There's a trillion a trillion dollars plus of, of critical minerals and rare earths. Yes. So on the one hand, we are all acknowledging in Washington and the national security community that the competition for their rare earths will power the economies of the future. Right. On the other hand, we're sitting on top of a trillion dollars with an aligned government and we're giving it away. Walking uh, away, really, exactly. Wa uh, literally walking away. Uh, it really doesn't make any, any, and so I see the Chinese moving in in that way. The Russians are obviously a very mixed story with their history with Afghanistan. But um, the other piece from kind of a from more of an unconventional warfare standpoint is Afghanistan borders Xinjiang province, where yes. the you know, if you want to get Beijing's attention, um, you know, as I've told the Pentagon, put a B-2 stealth bomber at Bagram, uh, make them look over their shoulder rather than just at Taiwan. Right. Uh, you know, uh, there, there are unconventional things we can do to support separatists, uh, to support uh, people fighting for their freedoms, basic human rights, uh, as we did against the Soviet Union uh, years right. ago. And we have the access and placement to do it. But again, well, we, you know, we're, we're just we're giving it up. And it, yeah. it, it, it boggles my mind. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a second. We'll come back to Afghanistan and, 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 and the larger implications. But let's talk about this situation with Xinjiang yeah. province right there um, and the situation yeah. with Uyghur Muslims. I know that you recently held uh, a roundtable with some leaders from the, from the Uyghur community. Tell us what's really going on there. Um, yeah. And you know, we've heard about a million plus Muslims being interned um, in, in re-education camps. We've heard about uh, the catastrophically poor human rights record of the, of the, of the Chinese regime. I mean, how is it possible that, that this administration, which purports to have a real 
committed interest to human rights is going to walk away from this part of the re- this part of the world, you know, without doing yeah. anything substantive on that particular issue. Yeah, what's happening, Jamil, in, in Western China is genocide in every sense of the definition, not just the State Department's Jeff definition, but the Geneva Convention definition that was established after the Holocaust uh, in World War II. Uh, a substantial uh, evidence, both leaked internal documents of the Chinese Communist Party, videos, uh, and journalistic reports, people being lined up, heads shaved, uh, loaded onto rail cars, shipped into concentration camps, sounds familiar, uh, slave labor, uh, a mass sterilization campaign, Uyghur women being sent uh, to uh, really kind of factory style hospital rooms to be sterilized so that they can no longer have children. The BBC exposed a mass rape campaign on the part of the prison guards to kind of soil uh, the gene pool. Uh, it's, it's eliminating an entire uh, race, ethnicity of people uh, for, for the worst possible reasons. And yet the, inter- the international community, this government, uh, and, and so many others are just turning a blind eye. I've led uh, a resolution for calling for a boycott of what we're calling the genocide games uh, in Beijing. I know that is controversial. People are concerned about our athletes and their ability to compete. I am too. Uh, I will say the preference was that the games be moved. We've asked the International Olympic Committee to live up to their own moral and ethical code and move the games while... uh, you know, uh, our State Department and 180 human rights groups say that genocide is active and ongoing. They've refused. And since we're now 10 months away, we are calling for a boycott. That yeah. is gaining steam. Nikki Haley has gotten on board. Mike Pompeo, the leader of one of Canada's major uh, political parties, uh, has also called for a Canadian boycott. Recent polling shows that 63 percent of Canadians agree with that on uh, human rights grounds. But the bigger piece is the financial, and, and, and this is what it comes down to. It comes down yeah. to the amount of money uh, that, uh, that international organizations who have been corrupted, but multinational corporations who have been corrupted as well. Uh, a recent Australian think tank uh, 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 put out a study that 82 international brands, many of which we know very well uh, right. and have in our households, are benefiting from slave labor and supply chain in, in Xinjiang province. Yet we're finding Coca-Cola, Nike, and others lobbied against uh, a bill that we had. Uh, and, and I'll just dive right into the controversy. You know, they, you, if you wanna donate tens of millions of dollars to social justice causes, if you wanna move an all-star game out of Georgia in the name of social justice, fine, that's very debatable, but don't then stand on that hypocrisy when it comes to modern day slavery uh, that's going on at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. Right. I mean, why is it why is it that Nike, uh, you know, the NBA gets away with sort of kowtowing uh, to the Chinese Communist regime, particularly when we all know all the reporting has gone on about what's happening in, in Xinjiang? How, how I don't understand this. How is how is it possible? And what, if anything, can the American people, can members of Congress do about it? I know that you worked on the, the yeah. Human Rights Act, right? What, what else can or should we be doing to really raise this issue to the attention of these corporations and yeah. these sports leagues. I mean, it's, well, it's I outrageous. Mean, to, to, to the point of, you know, back to the point of the Olympics, I guarantee you uh, if any state in the United States was imprisoning a million Muslims, our own athletes would be calling for a boycott. 
right? So I, I, I have a hard time intellectually understanding, you know, how it's, it's, it's not okay in one place, but it is, uh, I guess, with a far off distant land. But at the end of the day, everybody is making, I mean, reason the, the reason the CCP in China is the most insidious threat that I think this country has ever faced is because we're so awash with Chinese money. Uh, and if you look at what happened with the NBA, when one coach, uh, a general manager in, uh, in Houston tweeted, I stand with Hong Kong, basic freedoms. Right. Uh, and he was almost fired because the Chinese threat that cut the NBA off from their market. When H&M, Swedish clothing manufacturer, said, I'm no longer going to, to, to export cotton from Xinjiang province. And they were then boycotted and threatened to be cut off. They held firm, but Hugo Boss caved, right? Yeah. And Nike caved and Adidas caved. Coca-Cola, which gets a, a large part of its sugar out of Xinjiang province. It's been very loud on the Georgia issue, but quiet on that one. So the bottom, you know, the bottom line is it's the bottom line. Uh, and, and they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. And I'm going to continue to call them out for it. And we're working on, uh, on legislation now that for any company that is sponsoring uh, the Olympics uh, is going to have a price to pay uh, legislatively and from a regulatory standpoint. I mean, it really is outrageous that the Europeans are ahead of this. I mean, we are the country that sort of holds itself out as the leading, yeah. uh, the leading light on human rights, on democracy and the like. And we can't be bothered our companies are not only can't be bothered, are actually going the opposite direction when it comes to democracy and human rights issues. It's, it's, it's astounding. Yeah, no, it really is. You know, talk's cheap when it comes to, to good corporate governance. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, just last piece on that, and I know we'll talk yeah. about any in a bit, but I've talked to a number of these companies. You know, if you're willing to just completely compromise yourself uh, when it comes to being able to sell into the Chinese market, let me help you. I'm the, now the vice chair of the India American Caucus. Let right. me help you sell into the 1.3 billion person market right next door in India, which is often quite difficult. Uh, but we will help you do that. The world's largest democracy in line with our values in the Quad Alliance and right. not seeking to replace the American dream uh, with the China dream as President Xi is with an authoritarian vision of exactly. the world. No, exactly, exactly right. Well, let's let's just go back for a moment to Afghanistan. Now, yeah. one of the things that happened on Afghanistan was uh, when the president decided to pull out, he made very clear that he was discarding uh, the conditions-based approach to uh, to withdrawal, right? Which you know, you know, I don't know that the American people really knew what that meant. In your mind, what does what does that mean, and is that the right thing to do? Well, I think it, it couldn't be farther from the wrong thing to do, yeah. right? Uh, and 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 look, I, I just want to say I understand. Hard, long, expensive, difficult. Uh, you know, no one is 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 probably in Congress suffered. Um, there, there's a few of us that have that have that have suffered there and understand the cost of, of, of that conflict. But I would take that cost forward rather than that those groups regenerating, which they absolutely will do, and the intelligence community is clear they intend to do, right? And that problem to follow us back home. So I've told those officials, and I'm telling the Biden administration, the next Pulse nightclub, the next San Bernardino, the next truck box truck attack you know, uh, in, in New York, uh, attack Ariana Grande concert, and if we remember that in London, right. uh, that, that was hit with a suicide bomber, that's on the Biden administration's hands. You own it. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, and to have Jen Psaki, the, the spokeswoman explicit, be explicitly asked if we see the situation on the ground change, which I take that to mean threat reporting against the homeland, yeah. uh, will the president change his mind? And she, she, you know, replied with an emphatic, no, uh, I just find that incredibly yeah. irresponsible. The yeah. number one job of the federal government is to keep the American people safe. Yeah, no, it really it really is astounding. Um, so but, you know, if this isn't just Democrats, right, to be fair to Biden and, and Jake Sullivan, and the oh, whole yeah. team. Right. I mean, there are lots of Republicans, a lot of them, your colleagues in Congress who talk sure. about ending endless wars and the right. need to bring our troops home. I mean, what what is I mean, what is driving this sort of movement and what is the best response to that? If, 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 if you like me don't believe that that's yeah. the right answer, right, that, the, the, that we are benefiting by fighting these wars overseas that respond to terrorists overseas instead of at home, how do you yeah. defend, how do we defend this idea that, look, it has been 20 years, but we've been relatively safe for 20 years because we're fighting these, these folks. In yeah, Afghanistan so, and so, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you know, for those who say it's been an utter failure, I think having no 9-11s, no other 9-11s, despite right. dozens and dozens of plots to do so, uh, is, is a success story, number one. Number two, we aren't there to nation build. I do think we've made a lot of mistakes. You mentioned I wrote an entire book on the mistakes uh, that we've made from my perspective, both in the White House and out in the field. Uh, but that small presence conducting counterterrorism and conducting train and equip is an insurance policy against attacks against the homeland, number one. Number two, if your goal is to bring troops home, the true endless war is World War II. Uh, right. 50,000 troops in, uh, in Japan, 30,000 in, in South Korea, 30,000 in Germany. Jamil, we still have a battalion rotating to the Sinai uh, right. from the Suez Canal crisis yes. back, in the, uh, back in the 50s and 60s. So there are other places with a lot less risk that you want to bring some troops home. And the other piece, that 2,500 that's there, many of them are just going to get dispersed into the Gulf to be yeah. ready to go back in. They're not truly going to come home. And if you look at the logistics, for example, the drones, it's actually we're going to have to deploy more drones with more operators and more maintenance right. to keep a rotation because of the distances involved. So when you actually yeah. unpack it, you don't have many troops coming home because the threat's still there. As long as yeah. it's still there, we're going to have to fight it. Yeah. And you mentioned this earlier, but you know there are shades of what happened in Iraq. We precipitously withdrew there. Uh, and within a couple of years, we were right back in because we didn't have an option. ISIS had established a territorial caliphate. We know the Taliban are waiting in the wings. The very people who hosted right. Osama bin Laden on 9-11 are about to come back into power. And we know it's not like it's not like ISIS or Al-Qaeda have disappeared off the face of the earth or have given up their conflict with us. They are very much interested in targeting Americans and our allies in our yeah. homeland. So, I mean, I, I, mean, I guess we keep coming back to this question of how does this make any sense? Um, and if it doesn't make sense, you know, what, what happens next? Are we likely to be back in Afghanistan before the end of this administration? Uh, I think very likely, yes. Uh, I, you know, it's unclear whether this is going to be kind of a Saigon moment. Uh, I do think it's very, I, I do think it is likely, unfortunately, that the Afghan security forces uh, will slowly uh, start kind of disintegrating without our logistics support, air support, intelligence support, and the other support that we're providing. And I want to be clear to everyone who hasn't followed this closely. The Afghan uh, forces are out doing the fighting and dying right now. They're losing 30 to 50 a day uh, in terms of their casualties. We lost none last year. 
A lot of people who support this policy will say, well, yeah, that was because of the deal the Trump administration set and we would begin losing folks after May 1st. But even the year before that, in 2019, we lost six. Everyone is tragic, but we lost more sailors and Navy training accidents in 2019 than we lost in Afghanistan. So the Afghans are out there doing the fighting. We do. Our support is critical, Uh, whether that kind of disintegrates over months or over a few years uh, is unclear at this point. The other piece, and this is critical, is Congress's role. I remind people, we are funding the Afghan security forces to the tunes of billions of dollars a year. And if we no longer have our advisors there to oversee how those monies are spent, uh, I could see the frustration growing over the next couple of years. The first inspector general report that shows that, you know, we have no idea where those billions went in a budget constrained environment. I see those funds getting cut. The South Vietnamese army fell not right after we pulled out, fell right after Congress pulled the funding. Yeah. Uh, And, and, and that's the, you know, that's the, I think the final canary in the coal mine. Yeah, no, it is. It's a, it's a real challenge. And for folks in the audience, in about 15 minutes or 15, 20 minutes or so, we'll be taking your questions. So I see some folks already put some questions in the Q&A. Mm. Please put them in there. We'll, we'll definitely take them here as we get further sure. into this. Um, so, you know, going back to China, right? You know, we've yeah. seen a lot, of, a lot of, you know, heat and light going on in the South China Sea. We know they sunk a Vietnamese fishing boat in 2020. They've been maneuvering their ships close to U.S. warships. I mean, building military islands, for crying out loud, in disputed waters. Yeah. Um, you know, they continue to keep pushing sort of the edge on 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 international boundaries. Um, and it's almost it's almost even worse in Taiwan. Right. We've seen 300 jets over the Taiwan Strait in 2020. Uh, we've yeah. seen uh, just record in, numbers, yeah, record numbers. And just in this president's term alone, 25 military aircraft in the, the air defense zone. I mean, should we be cons- I mean, are the Chinese really serious about potentially going across the straits into Taiwan? And if so, oh, they're, what's our president? He's very serious. Uh, and don't take that from me. Take it from his own speeches. Don't read you know, the official translations because they're deliberately watered down. Read the, yeah. There's a number of groups that do the actual translations. He is telling his forces to prepare for war. Uh, he is the moves that he's making within his own political bureau uh, and, and militarily are, you know, that's clearly the case. I don't think there's a realization really across the United States yet that the Chinese Navy is now larger than the U.S. Navy by numbers of ships. Uh, uh, Qualitatively, they're not quite there yet, but they are moving in that direction. Last year, they built 25 ships, we built five, right? So they're cranking out a new ship every six weeks. They launched more into space last year than the rest of the world combined, including the United States. They just launched their own GPS system, completely independent. They've entered into an agreement with the Russians to put an unmanned and eventually a manned station on the moon. They currently have a satellite circling the moon, which no nation has ever done, uh, right. and, and are on track to put their own space station, potentially militarized space station in low Earth orbit. So we need a real wake up call in the United States. But here's if there's one thing that, I, that everyone I mean, we've talked about the IP theft, what's going on in our universities, our research centers. They're right. stealing the way to the top. If there's anything that I th- there's two things that I think, what do we do about it? One is cut off the flow of capital. Uh, We, the United States, consumer and taxpayer, are funding this beast. Uh, We, between our trade deficit at the tune of half uh, half a trillion dollars a year, 
the amount of capital that they're raising on Wall Street, Alibaba and Tencent are the golden jewels there uh, that do not abide by international accounting standards. And right. we allow them, we allow them an exception. Uh, and, and I'll just go ahead and say it. Joe Biden, as vice president, signed that memorandum agreement that allowed them that exception in 2014. Uh, and, and then also the investment that our own companies are making uh, with, without any regard for the national security implications. Uh, it is our money that is funding their military buildup, Belt and Road, their technological investments, and, yeah. and, and on and on and on. So, yeah. you know, where does this play out? Like, for example, we are wrestling right now with a uh, bill. I'm, in, I'm the ranking member of science and tech, uh, the, the uh, research and technology committee. Yeah. I absolutely want to increase our investments in STEM in basic research, in the National Science Foundation. The security office in the National Science Foundation is an army of one. It's one woman who is you know, so banging the drums. Right. Uh, the IG office in the National Science Foundation has had a thousand percent increase in referrals from the FBI on fraud, theft, uh, and abuse from Chinese nationals. Right. Uh, so as, as you are going to hear in the coming months, uh, the Senate, uh, Senator Schumer wants to take them from $8 billion to $100 billion, uh, because they want to keep up with China in terms of technological investments. If that's flowing right over to Beijing, uh, I can't support it. Yeah. So it has to right come with door. a yeah. – it's walking right out of the back door. So between our tax and investment dollars going over there and then – our research and development dollars also going over there. We will look back, uh, you know, historians will look back on this and just absolutely shake their heads. Right. No, I mean, you know, my boss and one of our NSF board members, General Keith Alexander, back six years ago, actually eight years ago, called the greatest transfer wealth in modern human history. And uh, this idea somehow that we're going to pour more money into R&D that's going to walk out the back door without securing it seems catastrophically like a bad idea. How, yeah. how, what can Congress do to really sort of you know, rein this in. Look, we all support R&D. We need R&D if we're going to do reshoring and onshoring and ally shoring, the kind of things that will push back on China. But yeah. we got to protect that intellectual property. Yeah. So look, I mean, we're, we're, <laughs> I'm pounding away on it. Disclosure from the research. I mean, they hand out just that foundation. We're not even talking NIH or the Defense Department or what have you. Just the National Science Foundation, 40,000 grants, 12,000 awardees. There needs to be full disclosure. Uh, which isn't currently the case. They yeah. need to provide if they have entered into any types of foreign contracts. You know, the security office needs to actually see those contracts. Uh, we need to hold uh, these research institutions and academia uh, accountable and liable, not just the researchers themselves. Uh, I, and I think once we get those pieces in place, uh, NASA is doing a much better job. The Department of Energy is doing a much better job. But there's still either kind of a willful, uh, there's either a naivete or a willful ignorance or a little bit of both. But again, much like the conversation we just had with the corporations, these Chinese researchers pay full freight, full tuition. Right. The amount of illegal money, uh, and I say illegal because you know, whether it's Harvard, uh, UPenn, or others are supposed to disclose it to uh, the Department of Education, and they're not, the billions pouring in through foundations, through yeah. research institutions, and through the researchers themselves, we are drunk on Chinese money. And that is yeah. causing everybody to either 
wittingly or unwittingly, turn a blind eye. That's yeah. what we're fighting against. You know, you mentioned earlier uh, this point about rare earth metals and critical minerals um, in, yeah. uh, in Afghanistan, right? We've seen the Chinese exploit their control uh, over rare earth minerals just as recently as a few years ago with Japan. And, we, and we've also seen what happens when our supply chains depend, like PPE and pharmaceuticals, right. on the That's Chinese right. system. How is it possible that coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, we aren't figuring out how to ensure that we're getting those domestically or from allies and be able to process those? One of the big issues, as we know, with processing is our, our environmental regulations that are strangling our ability to process. How do we get out of that box? I know Congress has done some work on it. Semiconductors, what about our rare earth minerals and critical minerals? <laughs> I wish, no, I, I wish you had a Democrat on, on here with me because I keep asking them that same question, right? Yeah. Particularly the ones on armed services that are seeing the intelligence, seeing the briefs. Uh, we just had uh, a, a briefing today. Anybody you know, who's watching, who's a gun enthusiast, knows that ammunition has gone from like 10 cents a bullet to over $2 a bullet. It is through the roof. Part of that, frankly, and I won't dive into this on this forum, is some of the you know, domestic issues that we're having. But a big part of it is the raw chemicals and materials uh, we no longer can produce here in the United States. And in fact, the Chinese have withheld multiple shipments of, um, we get the chemical right, antimodium sulfide, which is needed mm -hmm. for the primers and ammunition. It's mm -hmm. causing such a problem with the Defense Department being able to buy and be able to produce ammunition that they're about to invoke the Defense Production Act because wow. the Chinese, for reasons unknown, but one can suspect, are withholding those shipments over to the United States. Our Defense Department literally can't make enough ammo right now. So they're going yeah. to invoke the Defense Production Act to force that domestically. What do we do about it? I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, it takes the average mining or, uh, or processing entity in the United States, seven to 10 years to get permitted. In Australia, right. it's two to four. Yeah. Uh, so first things first, let's get, let's get those dependencies out of our greatest adversary and out of China. If they're in yeah. Malaysia, if they're in Australia, I would prefer they be onshore. Heck, I'd prefer they be in Northeast Florida in my district. But right. um, if we can't get them to the United States for a variety of reasons, doesn't make business sense, or we don't have the domestic capacity, let's get them out of China. Yeah. Uh, another thing that we discovered is the Defense Logistics Agency that purchases our uh, pharmaceuticals for our military, kind of important, has to buy FDA-approved products. The FDA, yeah. FDA doesn't have the authority to determine where the active pharmaceuticals, the basic ingredients, come from. So that's another one that <laughs> that's another one that we're working on. Or if you look at Buy America, Jamil, yeah. multiple court rulings have determined that Buy America can be final assembly. You just put that final bolt on, not where the raw materials come from. So we're looking to better define that in legislation. But you know, this need this is why it needs to be a bipartisan issue, and we need Absolutely. a wake up call. And we you know we had a China task force last year, but only Republicans were on it. Uh, yeah. Speaker Pelosi pulled the Democrats the day before we were due to launch. Yeah. Uh, and frankly, that had to do a lot of with election year politics with President Trump. And that's really unfortunate. Well, it does feel like that maybe on the supply chain issue, there's some opportunity. There are Republicans and Democrats coming together. You're a member of the yes. supply chain task force. Talk to us about what's going on with the supply chain task force, the work it's doing and where you see that effort going. Uh, hopefully on a bipartisan basis in Congress. Yeah, no, it, no. And in, in, in fairness to my colleagues on armed services and to the Democrats on armed services, uh, 
they are engaged in this issue. Alyssa Slotkin, representative from Michigan, is is leading is is leading that. We have another a number of other Democrats that are on. But my you know constant request of them is help us with the environmental regulations. You know, help us with some of these other issues uh, because in you know within their own caucus. Uh, and, and to really take the message home that this is truly a national security issue. And to your point, you know, COVID was a wake up call that a mask or a glove or a gown that we can't get access to as a country can very quickly become critical to our way of life. Right. Uh, uh, number one. Number two, what is the, uh, you know, the, 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 the task force's work is ongoing. Uh, one is just being able to fully identify and map out the problem. The Defense yeah. Department is doing better work, but when they have over 200,000 vendors, uh, that is that <laughs> just the magnitude of it uh, is incredibly difficult. And each situation is completely unique. For example, the material that we use to patch up runways isn't readily used in, in the commercial world. Uh, right. So, you know, they have to stockpile that or some of these rare earths. Uh, the Defense Department is, you know, maybe one or two percent of the market. It's a critical one or two percent. So yeah. they're looking at stockpiling. There isn't a natural, um, you know, there isn't a natural market here in the United States. So, so each of the problems is is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, the Chinese, as a matter of their national security, have are deliberately cornering the market in some of these areas. Yeah. Uh, lithium, you know, a, another issue where we could talk about a green economy. We cannot right. have a green economy without batteries, can't have batteries without lithium and graphite. Uh, yes. And we are looking at incentives to bring that manufacturing back home. The Defense Department buys a lot of them. So we think that can be a kind of a natural uh, kickstart and catalyst right. to some of these, some not, but some of these areas we think it can be. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I see we have 16 questions in the uh, in the chat. So I'll right. get to those here in just a minute. Trying to get the faster do, answers. I do. Well, I do want to hit two issues before before we go to the audience questions. One, sure. Talk to us about. The, we've heard a lot of discussion. You mentioned it earlier this Belt and Road Initiative by China. What what is the Belt and Road Initiative? What does it mean? What have they done so far? And how concerned should we be as Americans uh, about this massive in, infrastructure investment effort by the Chinese government? Yeah, so it's basically think of think of the Chinese right now as the payday lenders of the world, where they go into it, you know impoverished countries, give loans that they know the country can't repay, and they take as collateral ports, electrical grids, mountain ranges. You know, um, you know, right now, for example, and it's right in our backyard. Uh, and this is a case in point uh, with one of the ports on the edge of the Panama Canal. Uh, you know, the, the Panamanian government was 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 cash starved. Uh, the Chinese threatened or, or, or basically financed finishing one of the ports. Panamanian government couldn't pay the debt. So they took the port as collateral. Then uh, then they state subsidized, allowed that port to drop their prices almost to zero, put the neighboring competitor to ports out almost out of business and then bought up the distressed assets, guess what? The Chinese own both sides of the Panama Canal. That's kind of important if we need to get ships, particularly our Navy from east to west to surge to any kind of contingency. Yeah. Look, yeah, another case in point in Argentina, they took a mountain range as collateral. That was kind of odd. It was beautiful down in Patagonia, uh, but they didn't build a tourist destination. They built a space tracking station. 
right in line with our polar launches that launch over the South Pole. And that can also track theirs around the world. They're doing, they're doing it all over Africa, yeah. all over uh, South and Central America. Uh, you know, I have a chart here. They now uh, control or have major investments in 60 port projects. Uh, and they just bought up fishing rights in the Bahamas in the wake of Hurricane Dorian. Those fishing rights happened, you know, which is what, you know, just a few miles offshore of Florida, right. but happened to sit adjacent to the Navy's underwater testing center, which is basically their top gun for submarines, where yeah. they test all of our self technology. Big yeah. coincidence. But all over Central America, all over South America. Uh, so they're leading with their soft power. Uh, and we uh, have a, a relatively, you know, here, here's the good news. Yeah. And this is where I think, uh, you know, Democrats really should join us in this, where they do go in, they don't hire local labor. They bring in literally battalions yes. of Chinese labor. Right. They deny right. the local government access in many cases to these projects. They often are bribing kind of one side of their political spectrum. But when that flips, the other side's pretty upset uh, about it. And their environmental record is horrendous uh, with right. you know, chemicals, uh, uh, you know, being in garbage and just it just, you know, everything you can imagine being dumped into local waterways, strip mining, uh, where, where it's really upset a lot of the South American countries is their fishing fleet when it comes in, the one that's around the Galapagos Islands right now, isn't a couple of dozen vessels. It's the size of our entire Navy. It's three right. to 400. They're doing the same thing in the Arctic right now, uh, where they're, they're kind of strip fishing. Uh, they're strip mining the ocean. And uh, it, 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 the, the environmental impact, both uh, maritime and on land, uh, is just terrible. So... We are going back in diplomatically with our values, but we need to go back in in a bit with the with the Development Finance Corporation, yes, uh, and 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 help finance some of these countries into a better place, but in line with our values, not the authoritarian regime. So we are seeing some countries learn their lessons, but mm -hmm. it's 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 difficult uh, in some of the more corrupt places of the world. Yeah, man, I do really want to talk about space. I want to talk about Iran, but we've got a ton of <laughs> questions. So, so we'll go to the, some of those questions. We'll come back. Maybe we'll come back to space in Iran. So, sounds um, good. So, so you did you did raise the issue. So I'm going to ask the question. So Ambassador Cindy Corville, sort of the Obama administration, asked why it's necessary to compare the situation of voter suppression in the U.S. to the situation of genocide in China. Right? Uh, what do you think about Ethiopia? Should we not have to choose? What about South Africa and apartheid? What's different now? Well, I, I would fully supported, you know, years ago, I was pretty young at the time, the, the stand against apartheid. Um, okay. I think this is, this is, you know, about basic human rights. Uh, I just voted for a resolution condemning the Saudis uh, for the, the Khashoggi uh, uh, awful incident that, that, that happened there. So I do think we, do, we need to take a consistent stand. That is difficult. Uh, I'll fully admit, I mean, this is really a debate of real, you know, real politique versus, yeah. uh, you know, the kind of the old Kissinger model versus a human rights based model. But uh, for companies, this is where I'm really drawing the distinction for companies to boycott one uh, when really, frankly, there's not a lot of money necessarily at play, but not another when they're when it's all about the bottom line. Uh, I, I do think we need to call out that hypocrisy. 
And on a separate issue, if you really unpack the Georgia voting law, um, I, I do not think requiring ID uh, is suppressing the vote. I do not think that a drop box in every county when heretofore there were none. Uh, and I think if we're gonna be consistent, then we'll look at, for example, uh, for instance, New York, which still has uh, excuse uh, voting or mail by mail voting only versus no excuse voting that you have in Georgia. If you look at Delaware or Colorado that has much tougher ID requirements. So let's look at, if we're gonna compare voting laws, let's look at consistency across the states. Yeah. Um, but I think we have to call out, I, I just don't think in anywhere approaches mass concentration camps, slave labor, sterilization right. and forced abortions of women and a mass rape campaign that the BBC very credibly uh, exposed and was kicked out of the country. So I yeah. just think we need to be consistent there. Yeah. So I, I did want to ask about space. So we've got a question in the audience uh, from Steve McCain at KNL Gates. He wants to come at Space Force um, and talk about sort of the expanded use of commercial services, space launch, obviously, you know, Good. from from, uh, from from Florida, uh, remote yeah. sensing, ISR. Uh, do you think the Biden administration will provide the needed funds to the U.S. Air Force and Space Force to effectively counter what we've now heard is a growing, a very real growing threat in space uh, by China and Russia uh, to our national security assets uh, in, in both LEO and, and GEO? Well, the, the top line budget that they sent over was a cut if you account for inflation. So we haven't seen the breakdown within of the president's proposal. I certainly hope so. Uh, I'll tell you in war games, in every war game that I've seen, the first shots are fired in space and cyberspace. The difference with the 1950s and 60s and now is our entire modern economy is dependent on the constellation that's up there. Uh, uh, you know, from agriculture to real-time logistics to finance, uh, it, it, is, it is, and certainly our military and force projection capabilities are totally dependent. The Chinese know it, the Russians know it, uh, and they have developed the capability without going into detail and, you know, on, on this forum, but they right. have developed the capability to take it down. One of the things that I'm pushing on the Pentagon is we need to establish deterrence. That means yes. we need to declassify some of our capabilities. I want our adversaries to know what, what we can do to theirs yes. uh, and establish a level of deterrence um, uh, up there. But, but I have to tell you, there's not many classified briefs that really at this point, you know, kind of make the hair stand up on my neck. The yeah. space threat brief does. Because once you realize both our economic dependencies and our military dependencies, if we go dark and they you know, take those uh, capabilities out, we are really significantly degraded. Yeah. Uh, and that also applies to our nuclear deterrence as well. You know, our ability to see what's coming over the horizon and give the commander in chief those precious minutes to make a decision. Uh, if, those, uh, if those go dark, Excuse me, I think we had there a little technical issue, but if I don't know if those were the Chinese, but if those <laughs> go dark, we're we're in trouble. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things just to follow up on that, um, you know, we talk about deterrence and it's, it's absolutely critical that we declassify some of our capabilities so we can talk about what we would do. But we yeah. also have to be willing to actually use those capabilities and do so in a public way. We've now seen over a decade of presidents, Republicans and Democrats who accept on occasion. Right. And President Trump's decision about Qasem Soleimani. President Obama's uh, decision with, with respect to Osama bin Laden are exceptions. As a general matter, we've been reticent to set red lines and enforce them. I mean, the, the Obama whiff on Syria is infamous, yeah. and all of, our, all of our enemies are watching that. How can we effectively 
ensure deterrence if we have demonstrated over and over again that we're ready to walk away from conflicts and not prepare to defend our red lines? Well, look, I mean, I, I, authoritarian regimes are emboldened by perceived weakness, whether it's fair or not. It's their perception and they're deterred by strength. So if you look up, for example, if you if you think back to the run up to Soleimani, uh, we had multiple of our drones that were shot down. We had international shipping being attacked. You had a brazen and sophisticated cruise missile attack on Saudi Aramco, one of the largest refineries in the world. Uh, uh, Americans killed uh, on rockets on our bases and our embassy stormed, right? I, I actually was very public in saying President Trump was too restrained. I think if he had acted sooner, uh, then, then, then maybe that behavior would have stopped sooner. Right. But they, they took action in a very limited, targeted way. Soleimani in Iraq, not Iran, where we had authorities actively planning and plotting uh, to hit us again, uh, and did so with almost zero collateral damage. And that behavior stopped. I mean, it literally stopped. Uh, the Iranians are, have repeatedly shown that they are deterred by, by a, 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 they are deterred by strength and they are emboldened by weakness. And we're seeing it with the Russians now. They know uh, under the Obama administration, they, you know, they invaded Crimea, uh, right. a long sought after goal, uh, uh, the east uh, in Donbas, and what was the response from the United States? We sent the Ukrainians blankets and MREs, quite literally. Uh, right. And for all of the rhetoric, and, and not to sound overly partisan, because I, uh, I, you know, again was critical of the Trump administration when it came to our Afghan policy. But in Ukraine, uh, that lethal weaponry, I think, is what kept uh, Russia at bay uh, since then. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. We have, you know, we can point to time and time again, all the way back to Lebanon uh, and before right. when we have demonstrated weakness. And I, I think it's just a fundamental disconnect, you know, with the folks that are largely in charge now. You know, President Obama's second inaugural speech said it. If we extend a hand, uh, basically, if we're nice enough that the rest of the world will follow. I think that actually invites conflict. Uh, it's the old Reagan, you know, axiom of peace through strength. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, so Steve Danner actually asked a question about Ukraine. He says, first, he starts out by saying, go 464 ARBN. He reports that he has supported <laughs> the, the 364 in Schweinfurt back in late late 80s. Nice. Um, and he wants to talk about the reports that Russian forces are redeploying from the Ukraine border. Um, you know, we yeah. saw up, upwards of, of 10 to 100,000. Right, hundred thousand yeah. troops in the in the border region. Some appear to be moving out, but not all of them. How concerned are we about Ukraine? And is NATO really ready to respond if something happens in Ukraine? Yeah, you know, incredibly concerned. I, you know, that was a. I think that was a that was about the test of NATO and the administration's response of the Ukrainian response. That was intended to send signals. There are a number of I think very positive things that Kiev is doing. Uh, right now that we've asked them to do for a long time that the Russians do not like. Uh, and uh, but but, you know, we're still kind of unpacking yesterday's announcement uh, and the withdrawal. I think yeah. that has to do uh, as much for uh, Putin's domestic issues uh, as it has to do with everything. But I do think uh, that is, you know, that was a test run of what we're going to see uh, later this summer and into the fall. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so we've got about 13 minutes left. So folks, if you've got more questions, I definitely see a lot still in the chat. So I'm going to keep going through those. Um, 
But let's talk about um, about the uh, the situation uh, with China one more time as we come back to. Sure. Um, yeah. William William Thur, uh asked the question about China's investments uh, on the West Coast, um, the issue of climate, uh, the issue of gunpowder uh, and, and Chinese loans to the United States. How concerned are we about Chinese investment in the United States um, and uh, and and sort of the, the fact that we are and we are in some ways in debt in a significant way to China, whether it's through purchase of U.S. Treasury assets or other commercial loans? Yeah, so no, I mean that, that that's a great point. That's why this is you know such an insidious threat. Uh, and 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 again, I want to be clear: I have zero issue, none, uh, I, I, with the Chinese people, Chinese culture, long and storied and amazing history and and contributions to the world. This is with the CCP and actually largely with Z, uh, yeah. with Z himself. Uh, and, and his vision, who is actively talking about replacing the American dream with the Chinese dream, has accelerated uh, uh, but, you know, from the march across the South China Sea uh, to what they're doing on the border with India, the move into Hong Kong, uh, you know, the, the leaked documents from the CCP uh, in terms of take the gloves off when it comes to the Uyghurs, uh, the ongoing suppression of Tibet and Christian uh, Falun Gong uh, and other yes. minorities. I mean, one of the things uh, that I want everyone to understand, there is a, there is a uh, racial and ethnic element to Xi's vision on the Han yes. Chinese. Uh, it, it has disturbing resemblances to the Aryan uh, rhetoric that you saw coming uh, out of Nazi Germany, that this is not the century of China, the century of the Han Chinese. Uh, yeah. and, and one thing to understand that China is stitched together, uh, but between the techno surveillance that they are now able to, to kind of overlay across not just China, but the world uh, with the giving away of surveillance equipment uh, and ZTE, Huawei uh, and others and the data collection that they're able to do uh, is incredibly disturbing. You ask about the West Coast. Uh, you know, one incident that that we uh, really weighed in on was the merger and acquisition was the buying of our fertility clinic yeah. uh, in California. Um, fortunately, it raised some flags uh, that the money behind the group buying uh, this fertility clinic was um, uh, was was Chinese government backed. Long story short, uh, they wanted the data. Uh, and yep. they wanted the actual, uh, they, you know, they, they wanted the actual raw materials, the embryos. This clinic was right next to Coronado uh, and was providing military discounts uh, to military members. Good on them. Thank you very much. Uh, many are deployed all over the world and start their families very late. But that meant their data was tagged for yes. the discount. So they knew exactly uh, the DNA of who was going to where, uh, and then you know shift that over to COVID. Uh, yeah, again, you can look it up. It's not from kind of you know right wing elements within China. It was actually the head of military me uh, medicine and the head of their National Defense University uh, was publishing uh, gene crisping and other yes. types of biological warfare for ethnic cleansing or to be able to build into their military campaign. So you play that forward, they were able to take out an aircraft carrier in the Theodore Roosevelt by accident, probably with the coronavirus. But if they could unleash 
uh, a virus in a port city that only targets certain ethnicities or gene sequences found in Americans, uh, you know, they could literally, and eventually you play that forward, unleash it in a stadium that targets Jamil Jaffer's yeah. gene sequence. Uh, that, you know, this sounds like you know, crazy Tom Clancy science fiction right, book, right. but it's in their own military writings if you get the actual translations. Yeah. Uh, and, and those types of targeted investments, if the final piece is uh, through M&A, they have been targeting uh, mergers and acquisitions, key technologies, nanotechnology, robotics, uh, yeah. advanced materials that have seemingly civilian uses. Our CFIUS process, which catches this dual-use technology, is overwhelmed, underfunded. Yeah. We're looking to address that but I'm looking to address it in the contractual relationship on the front end. Yes. If you do business with the Department of Defense, you are precluded from doing certain things with that company on the back end on an exit. Rather than playing defense and hoping CFIUS catches it, we, right. need to, we need to make it very clear to the private equity community on the front end what they can and can't do. So those are just a couple of things that I'm trying to do yeah. uh, through the next round of NDAA. So I think that makes I think that makes a lot of sense, and you know, but part of the challenge here, you pointed out the the, the efforts on Wall Street um, and the efforts in Congress to sort of address financing of Chinese companies and the public, uh, the public, uh, you know, uh, listing of Chinese companies and the, their their makeup in in, uh, in in indices, right? There's been a lot of talk about this, right? But it seems like a pretty tough nut to crack given our sort of fairly open economy. How do we address that particular uh, issue? JP yeah. Moore, I, that, is, that is a great issue. And we are not of all the same mind, even amongst Republicans. There's kind of the yeah. laissez-faire, right? You know, best return for shareholders. Uh, look, I built a business and I'm very proud of um, before I ran for office, but right. only to a point uh, when it comes to our national security. So, for example, uh, I led an effort uh, with, with others uh, last year to stop the thrift savings program, which is the government's retirement program, the military's 401k from investing its 700 billion in assets through the Beijing stock market. So we were, we were on the verge of having a situation where Navy sailors were sending their paycheck home right. to be invested in the 401k right. that was then going to invest right. into Bohai shipyards yeah. that just launched two stealthy uh, ballistic missile submarines, Right. Right. Um, but that was a huge fight. That was a huge fight. 22 state pensions, including Florida, including California, are also investing into the market. Um, so it's we need a real wake up. J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs just released literature of how to make more money in Hong Kong. Uh, yeah. As you know, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party are literally ripping people out of their homes because they waved American flag. Or, or, or recited, uh, you know, the Declaration of Independence and protest. Um, one of the things kind of a, from a concrete standpoint that I'm looking to do uh, when the Defense Department puts out bids is to prioritize domestic sourcing when they, you know, when they do their evaluation for bid award uh, and to move that up the chain. And we have to define that appropriately, what constitutes domestic sourcing. Uh, so that we are we are incentivizing. I want to incentivize, not regulate. Uh, yeah. So we are incentivizing companies to bring those chains back home, uh, and we're incentivizing domestic investment. You look at Central America. You know, if we were doing through the new NAFTA deal through the USMCA, uh, if we were if we had our textile industry 
there instead of in eastern China, you know, perhaps we would have fewer migrants uh, coming across our border, right? I mean, this all of this is interlinked. And, right. uh, uh, you know, we're doing, I'm doing the best we can with the only bill that seems to move through Congress these days, and that's the defense bill. NDA, yeah. You know, Bradley Fowler asks, um, is yeah. there any way for our national security community or industry, can we, is it even possible to partner with China when it comes to cybersecurity public policy, or are we just too far apart in, in our views on what cybersecurity means? Here, with Z in charge, uh, I would say no, uh, yeah. because, uh, and I hate to be so absolutist about it, but under their national security law, the most well-meaning individual, the most well-meaning company, uh, when they're tapped on their shoulder, uh, they have to provide that data and they have to provide that uh, IP. Uh, and we've seen uh, many, many instances where the families back home are held as collateral and you understand how important the family unit is in, in, in Chinese culture. That is a powerful, powerful, it's sad, but that's a powerful tool. So I, I just, I, I, I don't see it. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, what a great opportunity. Thanks for taking the time. Mike, thank you for your service to our country. It's amazing. The first Green Beret uh, elected to Congress. Amazing book, uh, Warrior Diplomat. Um, thanks for being here with us. And thanks for taking the time to talk about this very real threat uh, that we face out in the world. Yeah, happy to. So there's been four Navy SEALs, uh, only one Green Beret. I just tell them it takes four of them to equal one of us. And then, <laughs> no, in all, in all seriousness, hey, Jamil, thanks for what you do. I wish I could give it to you, but I have uh, one of my coins here to add to your collection. I and uh, importantly, it's also a bottle opener. So, you know, put it on it. your bar and, and have a practical use. Look, I, I th thanks for all that you do. It is, it's really important that we get these issues out in the broader kind of uh, you know public discourse uh, to understand that when they pick something up and it says made in China that there's there's consequences whether it's in Walmart or whether it's in a in a stock trade that there's consequences to that decision and bringing these national security issues back home to people's everyday lives absolutely uh, I think it's God's work man so happy to do it. Absolutely. Well, listen, I just want to thank some of our audience members. I see Brent McIntosh, who's on our board of advisors, uh, Ambassador Cindy Corville. We mentioned Ron Gula. Thanks uh, to all of you who attended today. Uh, don't forget to check out nationalsecurity.gmu.edu, uh, where we talk about these issues and take a very realistic and tough view on American national security. Stay tuned for our next NASDAQ nightcap uh, next month. We'll also be doing Hack Capital on May 4th. We'll be doing a session on Gitmo on May 5th. And check out our brand new blog, The Skiff, uh, at theskiff.org. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Mason Matzek. we got three awesome podcasts, Fault Lines, NSI Live, and the awesome Iron Butterfly, which features the stories of amazing women in the intelligence community. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Congressman Waltz, and have a great night, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.